Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 139 with Lyme expert Lorraine Johnson. Also, welcome with me to the studio, our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello. In this episode, you will learn about my Lyme data and its registry, the surprising statistic of how many Lyme sufferers are actually using antibiotics, and how you can use the My Lyme Data Registry to help you along your Lyme journey. Okay, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about today's guest? Lorraine Johnson is the Chief Executive Officer of LymeDisease.org and an attorney advocate. In 2014, she co-authored the Lyme Disease Guidelines for the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. She has spoken before state legislatures, U.S. and international government agencies, and at healthcare policy conferences throughout the world. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Lorraine Johnson. So you're a very busy lady. Tell me what. Tell me more about my Lyme data. And what's what's the big picture? What's the little picture? Where do, where do you want to see this? fitting in with all the research that's that's starting to happen with Lyme disease? Well, my Lyme data is a research paradigm changer. So it's a real game changer in the sense that almost all research has been conducted uh, by academic researchers. You know, they come up with the idea, they recruit the subjects if there are subjects, and then they execute it and they write the papers. But my Lyme data is intended to be a patient-driven research project. So that's actually, that's a very big thing, this shift from the researcher being at the center to the patient being at the center. So that's one piece of it, is uh, that there's a real fundamental shift there. And... One of the lovely things about it is that when you use something like a patient registry, which my Lyme data is, you can bring in lots of data in really a pretty inexpensive fashion. And then that data can be analyzed. And, um, you know, old-fashioned research, which is still valuable, uh, is randomized controlled trials. But all of the randomized controlled trials of Lyme disease for treatment have been very small. Uh, the largest one was 129 people. And, you know, when you use a traditional research model, you can only try one treatment essentially at a time. So all of the you know, trials that have been done have been have not involved combination antibiotics. They haven't involved long-term therapy. You know, the longest piece of research that's been done was 90 days. 
So that's not long-term therapy. And they haven't involved co-infections generally. So what that means is that for the most part, you don't have, you know, the type of patients that are ordinarily the ones who have chronic Lyme disease. Because chronic Lyme disease patients generally have more going on than, uh, you know, a simple tick bite with one uh, pathogen, like Borrelia uh, is one pathogen, but most most patients who have chronic Lyme, we find in the registry, about 50% have got a co-infection. So there's more going on than a simple case of, you know, Borrelia, which is what most research studies have been designed to show. So how many people are in the registry right now? We have over 7,500. So we just launched it in November of 2015. And uh, at 7,500 patients, you know, you, you, you look to see, well, what are other patient registries doing? So 7,500 patients puts us in the top 10% of all patient registries in the nation. Really? That's amazing. So, isn't it amazing? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like we, yeah, we need a way to think about these numbers. So 7,500 is really a lot. Yeah. And our, our goal is 10,000. And we think that that's, we're going to achieve that this this year or you know shortly after this year and that size of a sample it allows you to start looking at you know what they call subgroups so those are patients who you can look for instance at patients who are diagnosed early patients who are diagnosed late patients who uh, have been treated with a myriad of different types of antibiotics. We ask also about patients who've been treated with alternative therapies. So you can capture all of that data and take a look at it. And um, the simplest things, you know, things that we, that we know or that we are told we know, you know, for instance, they'll say co-infections are actually quite rare. Well, you know, as I just pointed out, no, actually for chronic Lyme patients, 50% or more have a co-infection. So it's not rare at all among people with chronic Lyme disease. And what you really want to find out is what is it that makes certain people have chronic Lyme disease and other people not? So you have to start looking at these different factors and see how they how they affect the course of illness and even just to lay out some simple descriptions of who Lyme patients are. And so what, so, do, you, what uh, do you mean by that? That's an interesting thing to say. Yeah. Well, who Lyme patients are. We don't have good descriptive studies of Lyme disease. So a descriptive study would be a study that says, Here's a population. Let's see what, what their characteristics are. And in Lyme disease, those studies haven't been done. The studies that have been done have been primarily for early Lyme disease, 
And of the studies that were done for late or chronic Lyme disease, none of, none of them really were trying to characterize uh, what the patients were like, like this question of co-infections, for instance, or tick exposure. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, and, and that type of lack of information is pretty much across the board. You know, you might hear that there's a state that doesn't have any Lyme disease, but then when you look at that state and you see how many people from that state are in my Lyme data, for instance, you get the sense of, well, this, you know, this doesn't square. There's something off with these statistics. If we have uh, more people in a state reporting that they've been diagnosed by a healthcare uh, practitioner with Lyme disease than the CDC is reporting, then that's a piece of information that's really important. And it's important in terms of knowing what your risk is. So even simple things like where is Lyme disease and, and where can you feel fairly safe that it isn't, a lot of, a lot of statistics that are you know, advanced by the CDC or the IDSA are based on surveillance reports. But if you have a state where you've said there's no Lyme here and don't even bother trying to look for it, and if a patient comes in that tests positive, it's most assuredly a false positive <laughs> test for them, then what happens is you get this whole cycle of awareness going where nobody's looking, nobody's diagnosing, nobody's testing, and nobody's reporting. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Therefore, it doesn't exist. So when you're able to actually, you know, when I say this is paradigm changing, it's paradigm changing because patients, there's a, there's a type of democratization of science that's going on with my Lyme data, which means Patients don't have to go through a CDC filter. They don't have to go through an IDSA filter or through a researcher filter. They can simply come in if they have been diagnosed by a healthcare provider and tell us what they know about their illness. They can tell us if they recall a tick bite and where that tick bite was, and they can tell us where they live. And even those basic facts end up being really important. Yeah, I can I can totally understand that. One of my f- favorite, in quotation marks, favorite proxies for is there Lyme disease around is go talk to the local vet, and they'll tell oh, you. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, you look at one of the things that I did. I did a presentation at uh, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society conference last year, and one of the things that I did was I took a state where there was, you know, purported to be no Lyme disease, and that was Colorado. And um, and I looked at the CDC statistics, the MyLyme data statistics, the canine, the dog population statistics, and, uh, and also ILADS was kind enough to share with me the number of requests that they had from physicians for referrals. And... And those were large. So when you start, it's like if you're trying to figure out what is the risk in an area, you need more than one piece of information. You need a lot of pieces of information. And the canine maps 
you know, are really one of the most valuable pieces of information we have because they're not political. Right. They're unbiased. Yep. There's nobody standing around saying that dog is faking it. <laughs> that dog's a malingerer, right? right. That dog is a malingerer <laughs> and we're not going to count his case. Yeah. You take him to dog training school and then you come back, you know, that's just not what's going on with the uh, veterinarian population. Right. Now you, and you yeah, mentioned, go ahead. And maybe I'm misinterpreting that, but is, is there somewhere in the U S where Lyme isn't? Not to, not to my knowledge. Okay. No, I think, I mean, I'm not sure if we, in my Lyme data, if we have Lyme disease in every state, but if we don't have it in every state, we have it in almost every state. And, you know, part of the thing with, uh, you know, my Lyme data, 7,500 people uh, enrolled. So in our very first phase, we had, which lasted about a year, so November of 2015 to 2016, we had about uh, 3,500 uh, people enrolled. And we look, we've been looking at that information and spreading out geographically to see what it might look like. And the thing to keep in mind always is at 3,500 people in phase one, that would mean that the CDC statistics, which are about, you know, 35,000, right? And we know those are underestimated by a factor of 10. So really, you know, 350,000 would be your CDC statistics. You, you know that my Lyme data is, it's a microcosm of the, of the whole picture. It's not capturing everybody. It's a, you know, it's an opt-in patient registry. Nobody's required to, uh, you know, to enroll. So, you know, CDC surveillance, theoretically, it's a, it's a required legal obligation of physicians to report. A number of them don't, but the fact of the matter is it's got a regu- regulatory uh, component that requires reporting. So we would expect that our numbers, I would expect that our numbers would be across the board lower than the numbers in uh, the CDC, but they aren't. They they aren't. There are uh, states where the CDC says that Lyme disease is endemic, like the East Coast. Uh, the CDC has more case numbers than my Lyme data does, but states where the CDC says there's no Lyme, we're finding that there's quite a bit of Lyme. And uh, that helps to... Uh, hopefully that helps to start creating awareness of where people should be testing and looking for Lyme. It helps to create some real data for patients to go talk with their legislators or to talk with their physicians about. Now let's move on to more patient based and, and since you talk about the democratization, I can't barely get that word out. The democratization of the data. I know. <laughs> what, what, what patterns are you pulling out of this data? What is emerging that's interesting? Well, I, you know, I look, any, any patient who's involved in my Lyme data can look at the data, so to speak. It's all anonymized. So you can't tell whose data you're looking at. But what you see is you see the the group data combined. So if you went in and you said for your co-infections, oh, I have Babesia, you would see, it would tell you how many 
what percentage of people in my Lyme data say that they have Babesia, for example. Uh, so you can, anybody who's involved can start looking at data right away. And I, you know, I have spent some time looking at it. And one of the questions that I was really interested in was how many people use antibiotics? How many people use alternative therapies? Um, and what are we finding in those types of areas? So, you know, it, and that's sort of what we hear, what we're told is that everybody's using antibiotics and everybody is using IV. I mean, that's when you look at the picture that's painted of what's going on in Lyme disease, that's what you hear. But that's not the case. Um, actually, the percentage of people who are on antibiotics and the people who are not on antibiotics is about 50-50. So that that actually really surprised me because I, I didn't expect that it would be that low. Now, if you ask people, well, why aren't you using antibiotics, you'll get... You know, the responses are, you know, a number of them aren't on antibiotics because they can't find a treating physician or their insurer constraints make it unaffordable for them. But there are other people who say that uh, the antibiotics are no longer working for them and, uh, and then some prefer alternative therapies. So uh, that was sort of surprising. I was surprised. You know, 16% of people aren't using antibiotics and aren't using alternative therapies. They're just toughing it out? They're just toughing it out in one way or another. And a number of people are using both antibiotics and alternative therapies. I guess that's not terribly surprising. But, um, but you know, you end up having 38% on alternative therapies only, for example. So I thought, you know, I thought that was interesting. And then... Uh, alternative therapies are pretty easy, are easier to look at than uh, antibiotics because, for example, oral antibiotics, there are 60 different oral antibiotics. So, you know, really doing um, a data analysis on antibiotics requires looking at a whole lot of data and doing a lot of uh, work with the data to have it, you know, yield some answers for you. Um, but on the alternative uh, area, it's it's much easier. So I was curious which ones were the most popular, which ones patients that were the most effective, which ones had the greatest side effects, were reported to have the greatest side effects. And that type of data, we are able to pull out uh, pretty easily. You know, in fact, I presented on that data at our first MyLine data conference in uh, San Ramon a couple weeks ago. So what did you find? Can you summarize? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, what we found was we found that the most popular alternative treatments were herbal treatments, detoxification, homeopathy, acupuncture, sauna, and then it goes down a list. At the very bottom of the list, because I think that this list is about, and it's about <clears throat> 12, the very bottom of the list was stem cells. Huh. And, you know, stem cells, what surprised me, this is, this is really the beauty of big data. Big data with stem cells, 
I've only read, and I read a lot of literature, I've only read of case reports on stem cells effectiveness with Lyme disease. And maybe you'll hear about a person who comes back and there'll be a book or there'll be a blog or something. But we have 331 people in the registry in phase, yeah, in phase one who had done stem cell um, treatments. So that's actually, that's quite a few. But that was the least popular and you can imagine why it would be the least popular. It's it's expensive. It's usually inconvenient. People usually have to travel great distances. And it can be pretty invasive. You know, it can really, the procedures for using stem cells, it's typically not an injection in the arm. They're usually doing something that involves um, more invasive treatments. So that was in terms of popularity. But then when we ask people to rank their alternatives, the alternative treatments in terms of whether they were effective. And what we asked was, were they very effective, moderately effective, not effective, or were they unsure? What we found was that the treatments that were the most regarded as being the most effective were the herbal treatments, Mm -hmm. which is not a big surprise because they have, uh, a lot of them have antimicrobial properties, right? So very much like antibiotics in terms of how they might work. And um, the least popular, I mean, the least effective was stem cells. So stem cells, only 3% of the people who used a stem cell treatment said that it was effective. So 331 people, only 3% say it's effective. Yes. We've never had we've never had that type of data, right? right? And the rest of the people said it was either not effective, that was 4%, or they were unsure. They just couldn't tell. So that was almost everybody just couldn't tell. Right. Um, so that if you were somebody who was saying, I want to try something alternative, what are, what's my best shot? I would look at this data and I would say, well, I would start somewhere near the top of the list in terms of what people are saying is effective. And those are the herbal, herbal sauna, detox, acupuncture, homeopathy, nutraceuticals, electromagnetic, heat, oxygen. Rife machines are pretty much near the bottom. Hmm. Colloidal silver, pretty much near the bottom. You know, and that doesn't mean it doesn't work for some Some people, people, but for instance, for some people, because people are different, but like for herbals, we've got, I'm trying to add these numbers up in my head. So, uh, like, uh, like 66% of people are saying that herbal treatments are either moderately or very effective. Well, that's a block for a medication. That's a blockbuster medication. It's really, it's a high, it's a yeah, high it's percentage, massive, right? Right. Even aspirin yeah. doesn't work 60% of the time, kind of. Thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's true. I mean, uh, the, uh, the uh, guy who's the president of GlaxoSmithKline, it was about 10 years ago, he said, most treatments don't work for most people. And right. he was, when he said that, people went, oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah. But, and he said, no, he said, you know, they work for, you know, a subgroup. And, um, and let me give you an example that I think is a pretty good one is, uh, rice machines. So rice machines, uh, 20, uh, 28. So 32% of people say that rice machines are moderately or very effective. And the, 
the remainder say that they are not. So, you know, over 60% are saying that they're not effective. Well, I mean, if I were just choosing between things that I would try, I would not want to be starting with the things that were less effective for most people. It's a, you know, I would want to be. Exactly. Hmm? It's a, it's a wonderful resource and get the other things that, um, some of the things on the list you might not even think of. Or consider well, right. like some homeopathy for some people. So yeah, and yeah, that's true. And the other thing is, you know, like this is a list, right? So we don't have everything on the list. Right, that's you know, that's yeah. But what's interesting about it? And you say, what are the most effective? And you ask somebody, was it moderately effective or very effective, and so forth? That doesn't tell you if they're cured. No. So it doesn't tell you how well they are. I mean, the very, you know, the most effective treatments may still have people who aren't working. You don't know. So there's, you know, and we ask a lot of those types of questions, too. We ask people what their functional status is. You know, are you working? Are you going to school? You know, are, what, how much functional impairment do you have in your life? And um, Or if you're a homemaker, are you capable of doing the things that your family expects you to do? And... Uh, so there's a lot more to find out here, but it's a, it's a, it's a start at looking at the data. And then if you say, well, what alternative treatments have the most side effects? You know, a lot of people think it's an alternative treatment, therefore it has no side effects, uh, because it's natural, right? So a lot of people, you know, have that, that viewpoint. And so the ones with the most side effects were detox, then rice, then herbals, then electromagnetic, then sauna. And it, then it, it goes all the way down to stem cells, by the way, did not have very many side effects. Interesting. Interestingly, yeah. right? <laughs> Interesting. They didn't work very well, um, but they didn't have very many side effects. And uh, detox, you know, was the second most popular, the third most effective, and had the most side effects. Rife was uh, essentially tied in terms of having the most side effects and was not a, reported to be very effective. Huh. So, I mean, you know, when a patient is looking at what they're going to use, whether it's alternative or whether it's antibiotics, you want, these are some pieces of information you want to know. You want to know uh, are most people finding this effective? And you also want to know are most people finding the side effects uh, to be, and we had asked people if the side effects were moderate or severe side effects. So I'm, I'm talking to you about moderate or severe side effects. So not something, you know, not something minor, but something where people really felt like, oh, yeah, this is real side effects. Right. And, and, you know, it's interesting because rice, you know, rice has got a lot of side effects, a lot, in the, you know, with, with patients, there is, you know, there is a Herxheimer effect. So a lot of people think, oh, if I'm really feeling bad, it must be good. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> I have my own personal doubts about that. But. <laughs> well, and, you know, and I, I think sometimes it's true, but sometimes it's not. And, and the only way you, you know whether that's true or not is you want to know whether, you know, something can have an effect, but it doesn't mean that it's being effective. Yes. That it's working in terms of restoring you to health. So, you know, we, this was the type of data that we were pulling out for the conference in terms of, uh, you know, the use of alternative 
medications, which are uh, supplements and that sort of thing. And uh, a lot of people are using them, and so a lot of people ask us about them. Some people will, you know, we've gotten some letters that say, you guys don't emphasize the alternative enough. Well, I mean, we do. It's just, it's you know, you have to be able to get the data out. But we do ask about alternative treatments. And, you know, once we found that a lot of people were saying that herbal treatments protocols were effective, then we started to say, okay, what which what herbal ones? treatments? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which ones? Which, you know, becomes a, another layer of complexity. But yeah. you, you can do that. You can go back. So our phase two, we ask, uh, a follow-up question on alternatives is, if you're using herbal treatments, tell us which ones. Uh, and that just provides another layer of information that people and can... So did you ask if they ha- were following a specific protocol or did you ask for individual herbs? Well, the, see, now you're, see, now you're really getting into the weeds, yeah, right? Because we ask, yeah, you are. Because <laughs> we, we only ask, we only ask about the, the major protocol. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's I think that's what reasonable. we ask about. Yeah. I think that's totally. Yeah. Reasonable. I mean, maybe that's where you start. And then, you know, and then it may be you find, well, people are saying this protocol is the most effective. Then you go back and say, well, tell us what's in the which protocol. herbs. Yeah. Yeah. What's in the protocol. But we ask, I mean, in, in, uh, we ask a, a lot of questions that are hard to get answers to without a lot of data. Uh, and the fact that we've got 7,500 people means that we have a lot of people who are in the pool. And so you're able to really start looking at, at, at information and data that would be, if you had a small sample, you just couldn't make any conclusions. So we haven't started analyzing any of the data on um, on families, but we ask, do, it, are you the only one in your family who has Lyme? Do other mm-hmm. people in your family have Lyme? Mm-hmm. What about children? If you have children that have Lyme, did they have it at birth? Were you taking antibiotics during pregnancy? You know, we, we ask those types of questions. And, um, you know, you, the number of people who have who have been pregnant and had a child is obviously much smaller than the 7,500 that are in the database. But what you want is you want to get a large enough sample so that you have meaningful information and can start making some judgments about what the risk might be. You know, here's a question that came up yesterday in my local Lyme support group. And it was simply uh, the split between men and women who are infected. Yeah. So, and I know this is self-reporting, so it might not break down uh, and represent exactly what's out there, but Uh do you know that off the top of your head? Well, you know, we we find that the percentage of people in my Lyme data, it's disproportionately female. I think it's about 75, 80%, something like that. And that actually, that's what they're finding in the randomized control trials, too. And uh, that's what they're finding. And uh, the the one area where you're seeing uh, kind of a, a split is in the surveillance uh, definition. They'll say that there are more males. Uh, but but Dr. Stricker, Dr. Raphael Stricker in San Francisco, and I wrote a paper a number of years ago that was about it was about gender discrimination in Lyme testing. 
and the uh, and and I what, what we found was that males were more likely to test positive than females. Uh, yeah, and I don't know if we were looking just at early Lyme or late Lyme, but that females had fewer bands, and the CDC criteria requires you know five bands, so that that means that fewer females will test positive. So there's there's lots of reasons why uh, the CDC statistics may be different than uh, what. Uh, the general population is defining, but it does look like there's more females, and there's a number of reasons why that could be. Uh, you know, my personal uh, viewpoint on it, and it's just a personal viewpoint, is that because females, uh, you know, carry children, they need to have an immune system that will allow uh, greater flexibility in terms of not rejecting, uh, you know, foreign tissue and, um, and that therefore we're a little bit more susceptible. But other people will say it has to do with, uh, you know, but mainly they're coming back to female immunity uh, systems. So it's, I mean, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. There isn't enough information out there, but, but we are finding the people who are enrolled in my line data, there's a lot more women than men. In general, we know for a fact that women access healthcare more often. It doesn't mean they're sicker. It just means they access healthcare more often. Uh, yeah, I so, think that's true. You know, whatever, whatever that, uh, breakdown is, is caused by. So I was just, I was just curious about that. So my, my unscientific answer was, well, I, I would imagine it's actually fairly split. But in terms of who you see participating in a support group or online, is you're just going to find many, many more women. Yeah, Discuss. and you know, it's I mean, it's it's interesting because if it was just that women accessed healthcare more often, then you would expect that cardiac disease there'd be more women. You know, but there but there aren't, and you'd expect the same thing. I mean, there's just a lot of diseases you'd expect that to play out and. Uh, and and that that isn't the case. So it's it's too difficult to be able to really say what's going on there. But it's an area that needs to be looked at a little bit more. Absolutely, I agree. 100%. Yeah. Now I also I'm curious how was how was your presentation received by the audience? So. It, well, it was so the audience. This is interesting. I've given. Um, I've given this presentation in different forms to audiences that are primarily researchers, audiences that are primarily clinicians, and audiences that are primarily patients. So the MyLime Data Conference was primarily patients, and uh, patients want they want information more than anything. They want information, and the current state of research is that nobody's Nobody's doing the research, right? The last study that we had of treatment for chronic Lyme disease was funded over 15 years ago. There's been no research. And um, so people are just really anxious to find out what works, what's not working. And I think people, you know, patients realize they have to lean in, that to find the answers, we have to get involved. Um, 
you know, one of the thing, one of the groups that's uh, the most interesting for uh, myeloid data are the patients who are well. You know, so you really want the patients who are well to be in myeloid data because they can tell us, well, what made you well? What did you do? Uh, what were your circumstances? Were you diagnosed early? And that becomes really important information for people. So, um, and, you know, we also, we, we have a portion of the registry uh, that is for people who are deceased, who are no longer with us. So if somebody, you know, a wife or a spouse or, a, you know, somebody who is involved with somebody who died and they had Lyme disease, they can tell us what they died of, what was on their death certificate. You know, those are, that's the type of information that, you know, sort of nobody is collecting. But when we looked, one of the things we did uh, early on, and I think all audiences, by the way, that we presented this to have been really interested because it's a different, it's a different way of doing research. It has a whole bunch of promise that uh, randomized control trials uh, don't have. So randomized control trials are great, but they take too long, they cost too much, and they don't apply to most people. So they take too long, you know, from start to publication, usually five years for randomized control trials. They uh, cost too much. They're very costly. The thing that costs the most is really recruitment. And then they don't apply to most people. So, you know, like I was saying earlier, the treatment trials for chronic Lyme looked at treatments of 90 days. That was considered long-term. That's not long-term. It's not long-term antibiotic treatment. Long-term antibiotic treatment is more like what they're doing with tuberculosis. It's two years. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we doing those trials? Well, one of the reasons... There you go. That's exactly it. And that's, you know, I was asking a researcher, why are we, you know, what are we going to do? Add another month and then add another month and say that's still not sufficient? When are we going to actually start looking at what people are doing in clinical practice? When are we going to start looking at using more than one antibiotic at a time? And, you know, you can't, that's a really hard thing to do in a randomized control trial. It's not a difficult thing to do in a patient registry. So that's one of the reasons why researchers are interested in it, uh, you know, aside from the fact that it also, you know, it creates a research-ready community, a community that's really interested in research so that if, if new drug protocols come out, it's much easier to conduct uh, clinical trials and to get them through to the FDA and it's also, I mean, even simple questions like, does the 30-day treatment protocol work? <laughs> does it work if you're, if you're diagnosed early? How many people fail that protocol? And, uh, you know, our sample isn't everybody who's blind. So we don't have, you know, a lot, most of the people in our registry aren't people who were just diagnosed. Most of them have, were diagnosed a while ago. So, you know, it's a lot of people who were diagnosed when they were, had later chronic Lyme. But, um, we ask them, how were you treated initially? Were you treated for, you know, 30 days or less? Did that restore you to health? Did it restore you to health originally and then you had a relapse? Or did, you know, did it never work? Did you require subsequent treatment? I mean, that, that type, that's like basic information that we do not have in Lyme disease. Nobody's collected that. 
And uh, that's a real, and, and, you know, why haven't they collected it? Uh, you know, to some extent, it's this question of how practical is it to collect that type of information? You know, when you have patients who are able to go on and log in themselves and put in healthcare information, now things become really practical because the barrier, you know, this big barrier of, well, who's going to input it uh, is uh, taken away. And um, so you find that. And then, you know, even of the people who are, I think of the people who are in myeline data right now, it's about 10% are people who are well. And, I mean, we'd like to see that percentage go up. But even so, it's a, it's a sizable enough number that you can actually start to work with it. And one of the first questions that we looked at and that I presented at ILADS was, and at the LDA Columbia conference with a poster, was the question of, does early diagnosis matter? Uh, there's another question that's like, it's an obvious question. We all think it matters. Do we know if it matters? Has anybody really looked? And uh, what we found was that, yes, it mattered. It mattered greatly. It was uh, like 280%. You were 280% more likely to report being well if you were diagnosed early. So that's a really big effect. But on the other hand, uh, even among those who were diagnosed early, uh, 68% reported that they remained ill, even with early diagnosis and treatment. So now you've got to say, okay, well, what were they treated with? You know, why didn't they get well? Were, were, they, were they not treated with the right medication? Are we using the right medications in the first place? Do we have a problem where what is the standard treatment recommended is one that will fail the majority of patients, or at least it will fail the majority of patients who go on to develop chronic Lyme disease? And how can you determine which patients those might be, and how might you do an intervention that's likely to be more effective? So many questions. But these are the basic fundamental questions that I think this is what deters uh, doctors who aren't, who haven't gone through ILADS training and things like that. It's because there's so many questions out there that really don't have an answer. And, you know, because the fundamental research has not been done yet. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a little bit remarkable, you know, here, you know, Lyme disease was discovered a long time ago. We haven't done the basic research. <laughs> I mean, this thing that I was saying about describe the population, we, we haven't gotten to the point where we're very good at that. Tell me how effective standard treatment protocols are. You know, um, there's just so many pieces that we have to put together. And we also ask about um, things like cost. So, we ask people or healthcare utilization. How often do you go to the emergency room? How often have you been hospitalized? How many times do you see a physician a year? How um, how many times do you have home visits from healthcare providers? And all of that information tells us, and we we we've known this, and we've published on it. Dr. Stricker and I have published on this um, that. Patients with Lyme disease utilize healthcare much more intensively than people without Lyme disease. And we're able to do that comparison because these are, we use standard government questions 
that, you know, we know what the general population rate is. We know what the population rate is for various diseases. And now we know what it is for Lyme disease. And uh, we we had done this study. It was published in 2014. It's uh, it's available online. It's Pure J is the journal, so P-E-E-R-J. If you just type in Pure J in line, it'll pop up. And um, we, we found that there was a heavier utilization. We found that there was a higher unemployment rate. Uh, and why would those types of issues be important? Well, they're really critically important if you're trying to demonstrate what the cost of the illness is. If you're trying to show people, here's what it costs not to treat, you know, Here's the healthcare utilization rate you're getting, regardless of what you call it. And there's a, you know, there's a study that was done by uh, Emily Adrian, who was working with John Alcott at Johns Hopkins, and they took a look at a really large insurance database and did the same sort of analysis and came to the same sort of conclusion that Lyme patients were utilizing healthcare services at higher rates, and that it was. Um, Costly. So when something is costly on the healthcare provider and on the healthcare system, if there is a cost that's being borne by insurers, then insurers should care about whatever they can do to minimize that cost. And in Lyme disease, that means really trying to find effective treatments because you can put somebody on palliative care for life. You know, it doesn't give them back their functionality. It doesn't reduce the number of visits and so forth. You have to actually start addressing the root causes. But, you know, you start compiling the type of information that can be useful with healthcare policy people, people who are involved in legislation, um, and anybody who's interested in controlling healthcare costs. But you have to collect the information to be able to talk to people about it. Are you getting researchers accessing this data, or are you still at the point where you're trying to let people know it exists? Well, we're just we're kind of just at that crossover point. We have we're working very hard on getting uh, as much enrollment in myelin data as we can get, and we're also beginning to talk to researchers. At the we're at the preliminary stages of that. Uh, but yeah, we've started doing that and, um, that's going to be the next fundamental step. And a lot of the researchers that we'll be talking with, I mean, some, a lot, some of the researchers will be the traditional researchers that you expect because patient registries can do an awful lot for anybody who's doing a clinical trial. I mean, you know, like the, the, the randomized control trials that started at 90 days, we could have done a follow-on of those patients for a year or two years, you know, pretty easily and seeing how they fared over the, over the long term. Um, and you don't, you know, right now in randomized control trials, you don't have that data being collected. But some of the other researchers that will be interested will be, you know, the researchers who are more involved with technology, so big data researchers, so biostatisticians, epidemiologists, people who are used to taking really massive amounts of data, like, you know, Watson, for instance, with IBM, is they're involved in looking at massive amounts of data to find out where they see patterns and characteristics. Um, you're, those, are, those are some of the new types of researchers that will start to be involved. So it, when, you know, 
when I say it's a paradigm change, it's a real paradigm change because you end up doing a different type of researcher research with different researchers, and you know you're able to do this subgroup analysis that we've never been able to do. Have you been in touch with the big data people out Mount Sinai in New York City? Are you familiar with them? No, I haven't. I haven't been in touch with them yet, but there, uh, I I have heard about them. So there's certainly somebody, you know, there's certainly a group of people that I'm interested in. It would be a good connection. They hosted a conference last fall, and one of their themes was big data. And they Mm -hmm. brought in, oh, good grief, I'm going to forget the name of the insurance company, but they're out of the kind of the the middle Pennsylvania and Philadelphia area. So they're talking about big data sets and and, and working with things like that. So they they brought in an interesting mix of uh, people uh, on the research side, the fundamental research side, the the names we were all familiar with, but then also some folks who are, have more experience on the big data side and are trying to to use that with the Lyme thing. So I think that would be a fruitful connection to make because I don't know if they know that your database exists. Hopefully they would. And matter of fact, I'll, I'll send you the name of uh, – one of their coordinators. I think that would be good. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. I'd love that. Now, how does one put oneself in the database? Because that's really where the rubber's hitting the road. And then after that, the second question will be, if you're just one of these really curious line people who's up at 3 a.m. and wants to look at the data <laughs> and write a report because you have high glutamate too, um, how, do you, how do you access that? So let's start with the, how do you get yourself in the database? So the easiest way to get in the database is you go to mylimedata.org. So mylimedata.org will take you directly to the database, and then you just simply register and you answer your first survey. And then every three months we follow up because we're trying to find out what treatments people are make, are taking and whether they're effective or not. So we're tracking people's progress over time. Uh, checking in every three months. The other place, if you're trying to find a lot of information about my Lyme data, where we publish most of that is on LymeDisease.org, which, you know, uh, developed the registry. So uh, that is where you'll find information, for instance, on does early diagnosis matter. I put up the speech, actually, that I gave at uh, San Ramon, that encompasses some of these alternative treatments. That's up on my line data. Uh, uh, also, we have some information. We took a, a quick look at MS and Lyme disease, and we did a series of blogs on that as well. So all of that information, when I write about it, when I'm pulling out the pieces that I'm aware of, it, you're going to find it on LymeDisease.org. But to but to sign up for the registry itself, it's easier to go to my Lyme data. If you go to LymeDisease.org, we've got a link that takes you to my Lyme data, uh, and that's an easy way to get in as well. Terrific. Thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. I know you have 100 things on your plate and probably 20 on the sideline or 20 hundred on the sideline waiting to, to jump on. So really appreciate your time to explain this to me because I've come across this database and this information about 
this project several times and I never really understood the depth of it and how important this was. And now I do. And hopefully a lot of other people will as well. So this is an awesome interview and it's amazing that Lorraine has taken this on. And just going back to what she said about basic research, you know, just the the simple things that haven't been answered or taken into account in regards to Lyme disease, it sometimes it makes me just, I don't know, it gets me really frustrated. It can be. Part of that is just the scientific method, Aurora, and these questions take time to answer and they take money and they take lots of researchers. And sometimes it just, the answers aren't easy to come by as well. We only knew how aspirin worked. We only figured out, we scientists, like I was there in the lab. No, the, the scientists studying aspirin only figured out how it worked something like 10 to 20 years ago and how long we've been using aspirin for more than 100 years, right? Mm-hmm. So that gives you an idea. Science is slow and methodical and in some ways, that's what we're dealing with. You can't wait for the science to catch up with treatment. A clinician has to use his or her best judgment. That's where the art of medicine really comes in there and why it's so important to have uh, somebody who knows about Lyme disease as your main practitioner, somebody who's been through the ILADS training or has lots of experience in, in Lyme disease. And the science will catch up and then we'll know for sure and that will affect and inform how all us practitioners treat people with Lyme disease. So it's it's really a yin-yang. In one way, we need the solid yin base of science. And on the other hand, on the yang side, we got to forge ahead. There are people who are sick right now. So don't be frustrated. That's just how science works. We could use more people researching and more money, as always. Uh, but every disease advocate organization says that too. <laughs> the Cancer Society says that. AIDS Society, everybody says that. Mm-hmm. There's never enough money for research. Okay, and that, you know, brings to mind LymeDisease.org, the website and the association, has some amazing people there. And we interviewed Dorothy Leland, who runs the Touch by Lyme blog at LymeDisease.org. And that's episode number 78. So there's just some fantastic people over there out in California doing amazing things, and they've been doing it for a long time. They're really... They've got the standard, and we're all kind of following along in their wake, and they make it a lot easier for us to do our job. So hats off to LymeDisease.org. If you haven't been over there and you're not familiar with them, please go check them out. And if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, we'd appreciate it if you would support our efforts by subscribing. Go to LimeNinjaRadio.com, and you will see the subscribe button under the featured episode. Thank you, Aurora. And lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know that ninjas are allowed to watch Saturday Night Live on Friday? Lime Ninja. 
Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.